Use my name. The street. Talk, motherfucker. My name is my name. This is My Name Is My Name, an anomalous humanities podcast with APS. On today's episode, I sit down with George Yancey, professor of philosophy at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. difficult week here in the United States of America after the recent spate of cop murders of black people and the failure to indict any of those police officers we were treated to the torture report that just came out and perhaps most horrifically we were also treated to the majority of Americans being fine with torture even when you call it torture It's enough to make one give up on this concept of hope. This looking for hope is one of the reasons why I wanted to have George Yancey on today. For those who don't know who George is, he's the author of a number of books, Black Bodies, White Gazes, and Look a White. He's also edited a number of really important collections on pedagogy and race, as well as other works in critical whiteness studies. George's work has been very important for me specifically because of the pedagogy work. It was a seminar held at Villanova University where I first saw George speak, and he talked about the importance of dangerous classrooms. Now, we talk a little bit about this in the conversation, uh, but of course a dangerous classroom isn't a place where the students are physically in danger, but a place where students are forced to confront difficult ideas and where the professor, the instructor, has to speak bravely, practicing a kind of paresia. It was George's work that helped me think how I could take traditional and important aspects of teaching and combine them with a courageous speaking about contemporary issues related to race and gender and class. George's work on whiteness has also been very important for me in learning how to develop a kind of double consciousness, again something we'll talk about. George has been a great advocate for other uh, scholars of color, uh, especially within the discipline of philosophy, and I would highly recommend his uh, collection of interviews with other black scholars, um, as well as the recent interviews that have been collected on The Stone, which is the New York Times website um, for philosophical writing. And clearly he finds that to be important. I know I'm thankful for it. But if I somewhat selfishly look to George to help me recover my sense of hope, he still spoke truthfully and he still spoke bravely 
about the failure of philosophy. And he didn't give me any comfort. Or at least he didn't make me feel settled. Instead, simply saying that those who care about these issues, whether they're uh, allies, so to speak, or they're uh, people of color who experience this in a way that I can't possibly understand, there's just a choice that one goes on, and that one continues to try, and one continues to resist, and one continues to think. And this hit me pretty hard today, uh, as I just turned in the manuscript for the Reader's Guide to Principles of Non-Philosophy, and I've been really struck lately with a certain sense of the futility of my intellectual work, a question of the ultimate value. Which is funny because I don't think that, at least consciously, I believe in things like ultimate value. And I know that if you're really about the work, you just get on with the community that you're in. Well, George doesn't offer me any comfort with that regard, but he does offer a lot of resources, while holding up a mirror to my own complicity. It's that double task that's the kind of double consciousness that I talked about. If one's going to continue to go on living, you know, thinking about Bergson and the famous quote at the end of the two sources of morality and religion, where he says, the choice that mankind has before it is whether or not it wants to go on living. But if one does go on living, one has to decide what work they're going to do. And sometimes that work means holding up a mirror and making very uncomfortable realizations about where one is and who one is. But you may also begin to see places where you can fit, where you can do work that's useful and joins in with the work of others. None of this is anything that I think I have figured out, but it's the work of people like George Yancey who I think can help us start to work through it. And so with that, let's turn to our conversation with him. First, thanks for agreeing to talk with me. Um, you know, I, uh, with the recent events, um, in Ferguson and Staten Island and elsewhere uh, and the attention they're getting because as we know these are not uh, actually new events um, but the uh, the reaction to them the protest against them um, and the size of them does seem to be something maybe new and because uh, your work has been really important for me in, in the last couple of years as I've been thinking through um, questions related to race and questions related to philosophy um, I was hoping to hear from you about that but uh, what I wanted to ask you first was just a little bit about your background. So I know you're from Philly. Um, can you tell us a little bit about growing up in Philly and when you first got interested in philosophy here? Yeah, sure. So we just begin. Um, basically, I, I mean, I grew up primarily in North Philadelphia, uh, which is, um, um, you know, a fairly impoverished area at the time and, and currently. Uh, at the time that I grew up, there were a lot of gang wars going on, so there was a lot of violence. Although I, I like to refer to it as sort of the pre-crack uh, cocaine era, um, but I got to witness, you know, examples um, of, of violence, um, physical violence, right before me, uh, pretty much every day. Um, so it was it was a project. Um, so I'm a project kid, right? Mm -hmm. I grew up in uh, Richard Allen projects. Uh, believe it or not, um, Bill Cosby also grew up there, but long before I arrived, <laughs> uh, which is interesting. Um, but um, so it was the kind of place, if you will, the kind of uh, urban enclave where one is not really expected um, to get out of that space alive, um, let alone 
go on to college, let alone go on to Yale University, let alone write books and become a you know a full professor at this point. Um, so I think the socioeconomic um, so socioeconomic variables sort of were against the possibility of my sort of existential and intellectual flourishing. And I can share with you uh, one incident uh, that, that occurred. Um, my mother had bought me a telescope, and I write about this in the New York Times piece, right. um, where, you know, I would, I mean, here it is. You have this kid, right, who's in Richard Allen Project Homes, who's nevertheless um, using this telescope to look at the moons of Jupiter, the rings of Saturn, you know, and I would actually map out uh, various places on the moon where there were craters and so on. So one night I was coming down with my telescope and this white police officer looked in the door, looked in the window of the, the door and uh, opened it and said, you know, basically I almost blew you away mm-hmm. thinking that that um, my telescope was a weapon. Right. Uh, and of course, at the time, I don't think I had the discourse to really explain that, but I do recall emotively feeling um, that feeling being very profound in the very, in the very idea that uh, I could have been, you know, I could have been killed because of somehow my telescope was interpreted as a weapon. Right. And as a little kid, I was I was always thinking about death anyway. So this, in many ways, sort of um, brought death sort of imminently close to me as a real possibility. And of course, again, I didn't have the discourse to talk about race and the racialization of my body as such, and how it is that, you know, cognitively or phenomenologically, how is it that a telescope can become a weapon? Mm-hmm. But, uh, so I was about, uh, I imagine, 16, 17 years old. Uh, I wanted to be a pilot at that time, and I was reading through the P encyclopedia uh, that my mother had bought these blue encyclopedias. And so I eventually came across the word philosophy and um, by accident, and learning that philosophy comes from philosophia, uh, two Greek words trans, you know, transliterated, um, philosophia, which together mean the love of wisdom, I thought, you know, oh my goodness, uh, this is something that I've been doing all along, right? As a, as a young kid, I've been asking questions about uh, does God exist, which religion is true, uh, why, why am I here, um, and again, at a very young age, probably seven, very obsessed with the, the very, pos- well, I shouldn't say possibility, but, yeah, but the possibility and yet the, the reality of my own death and the fact that we're here to die. And I remember saying to my mother once that uh, I'm very, I said to my mom that um, I wish I wasn't because I, at one point, I won't be. And I remember that not sitting well with her, right? The, the idea right, of her right. son saying, you know, he would rather not be uh, uh, or not to have been uh, given the reality that someday he will not be. But this was me at a very young age. In fact, um, I also, uh, you know, I was raised in a Baptist home. So my mother taught me about, you know, God and Jesus and the devil and so on. So I remember one night saying that that child's prayer now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And so one night I asked my mom uh, if it was okay to pray for the devil, which mm. really threw her off. Mm. Um, so after some time of thinking about this, it, it could have been a month, I'm not sure, uh, she finally said, yeah, that's okay, you can do that. And, you know, from that point onward, I, was, I would say, you know, and God bless my mother, my sister, my friends. I'd name all my friends, and at the very end I'd say, and God bless the devil. Um, because I was being taught that, look, the devil is a very quintessence of evil, and it occurred to me 
although at a very young age, that it seemed to me that the devil, personified mm -hmm. as a male, uh, needed all the prayers that he could get. Mm -hmm. uh, um, but again, I think um, there was something about that kind of thinking, that kind of sentiment, philosophical sentiment, those kinds of philosophical intuitions that I came to retrospectively identify as philosophical once I discovered that there was this field called philosophy. Right. And that one could actually major in it um, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, really fashion one's identity as a, as a professional philosopher. Right. So my, that was my sort of my entry into, into philosophy, just by accident having come across the term and then realizing that I already had these sort of um, early philosophical sensibilities going on. Mm -hmm. And where did you go for undergrad? Uh, well, this is what happened. I actually, um, uh, a counselor suggested that, um, and I went to uh, Simon Gratz High School, a counselor suggested I should go to a small college, or at least a, a branch, a small branch of a university. So I went to the University of Pittsburgh as an undergrad, but I went to Bradford, which is uh, a, you know, a very small campus, very cold in Bradford, PA. Uh, turns out when I got there, I was the only uh, black person majoring in philosophy. Mm. And, um, and so it was difficult. It was difficult for me, one, because at one, not only was I the only black philosopher, the only black person majoring in philosophy, but I was also the only philosophy major. Um, but little did I know that the school that she had chosen was a place where people like Wilfred Sellers taught um, Carl Gustav Hempel, Annette Beyer, Kurt Beyer, um, Adolf Grunbaum, uh, Nicholas Rescher. I mean, all of these individuals were at Pitt when I was there, except they were at the main campus. Mm -hmm. So I petitioned uh, my second year to go to the main campus, and, and I did, which was really great. So, I mean, these had been individuals that I was reading about that I would see in books. And uh, so the, the professor there, his name is Dr. Sam Four. I mean, he immediately agreed and said, yeah, you need to go to the main campus. And then I went there, which, which was excellent because Pitt had probably the best philosophy department in the country, if not, you know, second to Princeton. Mm -hmm. uh, and by best, of course, best in the analytic tradition. Yeah, so um, that's interesting. Um, you know, I remember reading in one of your books where you're talking about uh, Sellers, for example. Um, when you were when you were studying as an undergrad, uh, and you're in this very analytic tradition, which is traditionally or, or normally thought of as not engaging in questions of race, or or, uh, or at least not engaging in questions of race in the same way that you find in the continental tradition. Um, did you find a lot of encouragement from those thinkers, or were you encouraged to kind of try to uh, erase your your own body, your own embodiedness? Sure. I mean, I think at that point as an undergrad, I had not begun to think about the relationship between philosophy, philosophical thought, um, and at the intersections of race. So although, in some sense, being in those classes you know, being the only black body in those classes was something that marked my identity as, as different in some sense. But it didn't register for me as something that stood out. So I saw myself as sort of doing, as it were, philosophy qua philosophy, which of course now I know, I'm not even sure what that means, right, to do philosophy qua philosophy. But uh, in working with Wilfred Sellers, at that point, I was interested primarily in two, two areas. One, philosophy of religion, and I was also interested in sense data theory. Um, and I think what's lucky, uh, what was lucky for me at least, I was lucky not to know 
that Wilfred Sellers was in fact Wilfred Sellers. I mean, yeah. I thought of him just as another philosopher. It was only later that I realized that he was the Wilfred Sellers, right? The guy who critiqued right. the myth of the given and so on. Uh, as with other philosophers there, and like Carl Gustav Hempel, I was always in conversation with Hempel, but I didn't know that he was part of the Berlin group, um, mm -hmm. which was associated with the, you know, with logical positivism and Rudolf, Rudolf Carnap and the rest of them and A.J. Ayer. Um, so I was interested primarily in sense data theory. So, what, you know, what is it that when we say that an apple is sweet, that it's red, it has a certain kind of texture, uh, what do we mean by that? If, and if it's sense data, uh, what do we mean when we talk about an apple in the, abs in the absence of uh, the language then that I use was percipient, right? So what does it mean mm -hmm. to say that one is uh, an apple is absent? Um, what, what does it mean to say that an, an apple is, let's say, in one's refrigerator without a, without a percipient? Well, in some senses, Sellers would say it has a kind of iffy existence, right? We might say that the apple isn't sweet until, right, it's, it's sweet only if a, a percipient shows up, right? So it goes back to that problem that, um, that George Barclay raised, you know, around um, uh, a certain kind of idealism, um, questions of, you know, if that tree falls in a forest, if no one's around, can we hear it? Right, these kinds of questions. So I was interested in, you know, Locke's distinction between primary and secondary qualities, mm -hmm. and I was interested in the way in which which um, George um, Barclay took those that distinction and collapsed it, such that all of the the qualities uh, were in some sense secondary. So that was that was my interest. Um, and again, there's always been this sort of a salient theme, uh, this sort of religious concern of mine about, you know, whether God exists, whether we can have definitive proof of God's existence, um, do we have souls, uh, and again, what does it mean to die, what happens after death. So these questions were always salient as well. Um, but it wasn't until after Pitt, um, when I went to, to Yale, uh, which is, you know, so I applied to grad school, uh, got into Columbia, Yale, and Rutgers, and decided to go to Yale. I had taken a course with Georgia Warnke, who's now gone on to be, you know, make a name for herself, but it was a course in hermeneutics. And at that time, I became interested in questions of the philosophy of science and hermeneutics. Uh, a woman by the name of Mary Hess wrote about this, where she integrated the work of uh, Thomas S. Kuhn and questions of uh, verifiability, questions of intelligibility, questions of uh, paradigm shifts and so on. So in many ways, that course, right, by studying Gadamer, for example, that mm -hmm. course opened up an entire range of questions that I had not seen. So instead of asking the question, what does it mean to say that an apple is red, right, it became a question about um, how do we even begin to use certain predicates like red, and how does language then shape our perceptions of reality. And if that's the case, then how is language linked to a larger community of intelligibility, a linguistic community of intelligibility, which then brought in Wittgenstein and language games and forms of life, you see. Yeah. Um, and from there, uh, after I left Yale, I um, came under the influence again of my mentor, whose name is James G. Spady. Uh, he's a winner of uh, American Book Award. He writes on rap music. Uh, mm. and a panoply of issues within uh, the African-American experience. And uh, we began to talk about uh, African-American philosophy. So it was at that point that I was introduced to this field, that there was something called African-American philosophy. And we began to think more about issues of race. 
So it was an easy transition then from Gadamer in questions of historicity mm. to questions of historicity and embodiment, right? So it was at that point, I think, that there was this turn for me from issues of, you know, how does, how does S know that P, uh, or how do we know that, you know, uh, an apple is red, uh, to larger questions about, well, what does it mean to, uh, for S to know that P? What does it mean for S to be a certain kind of epistemic subject? And P, what is that P, right? What is that thing that, that is known um, by S? So I think I was able to broaden these more analytically uh, conceptual, um, conceptually driven questions to larger questions of uh, historicity, larger questions of phenomenology, and larger questions of what it means to be in the world, to invoke a Heideggerian uh, uh, conceptualization. So I know... Um... I know for a certain generation of philosophers, the analytic continental distinction uh, really structured a lot of their, uh, well, not only their thinking, but their their careers. Um, and, you know, your work has never really struck me as, as particularly partisan um, with regards to those debates. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you think that that analytic continental distinction collapses around the question of race, uh, if there's a kind of failure in both traditions to engage with, with questions uh, that are, are raised in, you know, the African-American experience or, uh, or so on? Wow, that's a tough question and a very good one at that. Um, and I say that because there is um, the, the approach that I've been developing, uh, for lack of a better term, I've come to call it the density project. Hmm. And by the density project, I mean that um, the question about the referential status of race, whether or not race is a natural kind or a social kind, whether or not race um, is part of the furniture of the universe, and whether or not there is a specific referent in the world called race, is a question that many analytic philosophers, uh, even, you know, I should say even, but African-American analytic philosophers um, have taken up. And that seemed to have been the big issue, particularly amongst philosophers like Anthony Appiah, uh, going back to du uh, raising questions about Du Bois, and a few others, where, where the central question was, is race a natural kind? Is it something that we can say it ostensibly exists o over there, right? Um, and of course, once one poses, it, poses the question that way, it seems to me that one is raising, which is natural within the analytic tradition, particularly given the influence of people like A.J. Ayer, Carnap, and so on, and of course the whole transformation of American philosophy toward a more scientifically oriented philosophy, um, one then argues something like this. Well, race is not, there is no referent uh, in the spatial temporal world called race, therefore we ought to deploy something called race eliminativism. Just as we, in philosophy of mind, we give up um, folk psychology and we no longer refer to in things like it, intentionality, Right, certain kinds of emotions or certain attitudinal propositions, we really want to talk about neuronal processes, right, as Richard Rorty might say. So there's a kind of race eliminativism that follows from this kind of scientific uh, uh, analytic approach to the question of race. But for me, the density project says something like this. It says that um, race, and here I'm, I'm, I, I'm in agreement with Charles Mills, although he does write about race from a sort of analytic conceptual perspective. Um, but the idea is that um, if race 
isn't real if there is no referent. That is not the end of the story, right? We then have to talk about the way in which race is phenomenologically lived, the way in which it has an impact on bodies, uh, the way in which, though it's unreal, qua an objective existing entity in the world, it is real qua as objective. In other words, it's operating in our cultural world, it's operating within interstitial spaces, it's operating between our bodies, right? And we are feeling its effects, and it mediates the judgments that we make about our bodies, or it mediates certain kinds of emotive capacities, or it mediates certain kinds of epistemic judgments, right? So even though it's not, again, a thing, right, in the world, it nevertheless is a lived phenomenon uh, that must be reckoned with. So I think that in many ways, I think you're right, um, there's a way in which I want to do the density project while at the same time not completely doing away with the sort of analytic precision that is necessary when one is considering something as inchoate conceptually uh, as the problem of race. But to the extent that what I'm calling sort of analytic types, um, where they seem to engage in more of the conceptual analytic approach, I want to say that there's more of the phenomenological that needs to be explored. In fact, I'd say that it's been under-theorized, and that's the direction in which my work has been moving, where we really get at the messiness of race, um, where it's lived. And that, that's where it, it's the messiness of race, you know, that we see in, you know, when it comes to uh, Michael Brown or it comes to Tamir Rice or Eric Gardner or Trayvon Martin. Um, because despite the fact, despite its non, despite its ontological vacuity, race nevertheless continues to exist. It still has existential import. So I think that for me uh, is an important direction to go in, the, the density project. While at the same time, I want to say, yes, analytic philosophers still have work to do, but if we reduce the problem of race to the problem of referentiality, it seems to me that um, we are then uh, sacrificing this entire rich way in which race is lived at the quotidian level. So let, let's move a little bit to some of the work you've published then. Um, some of your work ha has been on uh, the study of whiteness. Um, and uh, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about why you thought that that was an important project to undertake, um, to study whiteness. Sure. Again, returning to my, returning to my mentor, James Spady, actually introduced me to the, the field of critical whiteness studies. But at the time, I recall um, that I wasn't very impressed with it. In fact, I, I remember my immediate response to the field was, why should we study whiteness when, in fact, that's all we've been studying, right, right. At, at this point? <laughs> So what's the point, right? But I think I missed it, right? I didn't see it until later. That really, um, it wasn't about so much the reinscription of whiteness as normative, but rather calling into question that very concept. Mm -hmm. And so I, what I did is I wrote my dissertation on on whiteness in the black body. In fact, um, black bodies, white gazes, um, mm -hmm. is not my dissertation, but it grew out of my dissertation. And uh, so that for me, I think what became important is to begin to think about whiteness, um, again, as this site of intelligibility, uh, as this framework of intelligibility, as this way of thinking about the world. So again, 
I'm back to Kuhn. You know, I'm still back to thinking about the moves that are made within a certain kind of paradigm, the way in which mm -hmm. certain kinds of justifications are underwritten by that paradigm, the way in which certain kinds of claims that we make about, let's say, subatomic particles are underwritten by that paradigm. So my sense is that whiteness functions, functions in this paradigmatic sort of way. It's what I call whiteness as a transcendental norm. And it's tr transcendental because it's the condition for the possibility of, of X, if you will. It's the condition for the possibility of defining certain bodies, in this case non-white bodies, as deviant, as different, as raced, as named, as marked mm -hmm. in some way, while it goes unmarked. So like Kant, um, when he talks about space and time as these transcendental conditions for perception itself, in some sense, whiteness for me functions as a transcendental condition for the very possibility of making those kinds of racial distinctions. Um, and so that, it seems to me, that was my, again, that was the way in which I was able to blend this later uh, concern with um, Kuhn, my concern with Gadamer, my concern with larger issues of historicity and lived experience with now the concept of race and racialization. Mm. Now, there's been a lot of discussion um, uh, recently around the protests, around this concept of uh, allyship, um, the question of uh, how white people should inhabit spaces at protests about the murder of, of black people. Um, do you see your work on whiteness as, as adding to uh, to that discourse? Uh, is it a way for, um, uh, is there something helpful there, you think, for activists? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Uh, I think... I think that what I find is that, at least when I've when I've when I've done these interviews or, or not interviews but given given talks or even interviews for that matter, um, it, it's often I'll often get a question from white people, and that question is often phrased as, "What can I do to help?" Yeah. And as I've argued, oftentimes what whites will do is that they will raise their hands with, let's say within the context of a lecture, they'll raise their hands with such alacrity for me to answer that question. What can I do to help? Without, as I like to say, tarrying or lingering with the gravity of the deep implications uh, of their whiteness and the ways in which they are complicit with systems of power and systems of, of, of systemic structures of power and injustice that have deep implications for bodies of color or black bodies in particular. So I think the, the, the question of being an ally is really interesting because it's etymologically linked to the term religion, mm. both of which sort of have this sense of binding back or binding do. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so often, I mean, I believe it's uh, religere and allegere um, and the idea of binding back to God or binding back to a sort of religious community. But ally, allegare, also has that sense of being linked to or connected to. So I'm, I'm definitely interested in, you know, creating forms of alliance across race. But at the same time, I think I want to make whites aware of the fact that even as they join black people in protesting acts of injustice, racial injustice, in some sense, at the end of the day, their lives are still complicit with the reproduction and perpetuation of racial injustice. And so what I want them to do 
is then to begin to focus on themselves as a problem. As my recent edited book, um, it's entitled um, White Self-Criticality Beyond Anti-Racism, How Does It Feel to Be a White Problem? So even as there is this alliance between blacks and whites, let's say over the recent tragic killings of Michael Brown and Eric Garner, nevertheless, I want them to see that they are um, embedded within a racialized structure. And being embedded, there's no way in which through an autonomous act, right? If you look at autonomy, it means self and law or nomos, a law unto themselves. There's no way in which they can extricate themselves outside of that embeddedness within a white structure, one. And two, um, in my book, Look a White, um, I've recently used the, the work of Judith Butler where she talks about opacity. Now, of course, she doesn't use it in this way, but my argument is that white bodies are not only interpolated through being embedded within a white racialized systemic structure, but they're also interpolated from the inside, as it were. And a good example of this would be Tim Wise, who you know is a white uh, anti-racist who talks a lot about uh, white privilege. One day he was mm-hmm. getting on an airplane and he saw that there were two black pilots and when he got on, he said, oh, my God, can these guys fly this plane? And he says, no matter what I knew to be the case, it did not help me. So it was as if epistemologically, it was as, it was as if epistemology was impotent in terms of countering that response, right? And had we, yeah. my guess is that had we asked him a few minutes or a few seconds prior to getting on, you know, what will you do if, or what will you think if you see two uh, African-American pilots, uh, what would you say? He would probably say, great, excellent, wonderful progress, right? Right. But instead, uh, he is ambushed by his whiteness. And so my claim is that, and I'll bring this back to the question of, of cross-racial alliance, my point is that he is unable to see the very limits of his own racism. So his, the limits of his own racism are opaque to him, and therefore... There's, again, the interpolative hailing, as it were, as a white racist internally, and then there's the external hailing within the context, the context of embedded reality. So my sense is that um, being an ally is, is important to larger, the larger, uh, our larger ideals of struggling against white racism. But what I want whites to be, I want them to be vigilant, and I want them to be way aware, in fact, painfully cognizant of the fact that just being an ally does not free one from the insidious nature of white racism, because at the end of the day, I would say that they are still anti-racists, racists. So even as they march, right, even as they protest uh, police officers and the militarization of the state, in the case of Michael Brown, in the case of Eric Garner, I want to say in some sense, they are still part of the problem. Right. Yeah, you you have a really wonderful example in uh, I think it's Look a White where you're talking about um the actor who played Kramer and yes. you know he had that that horrible outburst and then he's on the the Dave Letterman show giving his uh mea culpa and he says that it just came up it came uh, on him from behind. Yes. Uh, and you talk about the racism acting as a kind of ambush on on white people. Um I thought that was a particularly powerful example of it. Um so if I could just sing your praises a little bit as we transition to talk a, a little bit about pedagogy and the publicness of your work. Sure. Um, you know, I, I first became aware of you when I saw you at Villanova University uh, leading a workshop and then giving a lecture. Um, 
and uh, it came at a, a great time for me. Um, I was a little beaten down by the teaching work at the at the time, and um, yeah, your discussion of pedagogy was very electrifying for me, very energizing for me, um, especially around the notion of teaching uh, teaching anti-racist philosophy, um, but through kind of normal, uh, or, or through, um, uh, yeah, just normal classroom settings, uh, mm. making them dangerous spaces mm. for the students to confront their, their own racism. Mm. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about um, how you see philosophy, uh, uh, not in the role of research, but at your, as, the, as a professor, how do you understand communicating that to, to undergraduate students? Yeah, sure. Now that's, that's an excellent question. Um, I think that part of my conception of philosophy grows out of those deep and personal existential questions that I was faced, that, that, I, that I was faced with as a child. And one of them, I mean, is death, right? So for me, what I often do um, when I'm teaching a course, I'll often ask students to look at each other because often they're looking at me. And I'll ask them, just look at each other for a while. Think about each other. Think about the fact that you are here in this space at this moment. And then I'll have them look at me and I'll say, now just realize that in a hundred years, none of you will be here, right? And then often there's this silence, right? And so I've had some students say, oh, oh my God, why do we have to think about that, right? Um, so there's this kind of mood that I want to create. There's a kind of bildung a kind of paideia, if you will, kind of education, uh, which which comes from educare, which means to lead out. There's a way in which I want to lead them out of a certain kind of comfortability, a certain kind of comfort that they have of being in the world, and to let them know that, look, look, in this classroom, it's a relatively safe space where we get to engage ideas, right? We get to, you know, we get to explore ideas about whether it's, you know, Descartes' cogito ergo sum or, or Socrates drinking the hemlock. But in reality, there's more to be faced with here. And one is our own imminent death. And I think that tends to shift the, the I don't know, it, it's as if it, it shifts the seriousness of the discussion. In some sense, they begin to see themselves as finite, Right their own limits. And I, and I often, you know, will quote Cornell West where he talks about uh, uh, each of us being born between uh, feces and urine, right? So there's a kind of a funkiness, right? And also that someday will become the culinary delight of terrestrial worms, right? But this, this I think, it's off-putting. While at the same time, I think that my students appreciate paresia, or which means, you know, which means to speak courageously, and so what I'm doing there is I'm opening, the, I'm opening them up, exposing them to paresia or courageous speech in order to create for them a kind of courageous listening. As, you know, Thomas Nelson Baker, who was the first African-American philosopher to receive a PhD in philosophy in, in 1903 from Yale, he's actually born a slave in 1860, and he says that we often go through education, but education doesn't go through us. And so I think this education going through us is what I'm trying to do. Um, and what I'm trying to do is, you're right, to create a dangerous space. Now, what does that mean? Of course, it doesn't mean fighting in the classroom, but it means placing one's identity on the very precipice, on the very edge of loss, right? The possibility of losing one's own self in this classroom, right, for a semester, I think is quite profound. 
And the idea of losing oneself is the idea that somehow the selves that they've brought to that classroom have already, and since I teach at a predominantly white university, have already got done, if you will, by whiteness. So in some sense, they've already come to think about themselves as autonomous, liberal, atomic selves that are not, in some sense, grounded in anything except for themselves, right? So by bringing in death already, and of course this is a cross-race, is the sense in which I'm showing them, look, there is this profound vulnerability that we all have in this classroom. And one way in which I'm, one way in which I get them to think about the value of vulnerability, which means to be wounded, is for me to demonstrate that vulnerability by talking openly about my own sexism, let's say, and the way in which I am embedded within a sexist system and the way in which I perpetuate that sexism, and also the way in which I'm opaque to the limits of my own knowledge about my own sexism, right? It's by demonstrating that that I show them, look, this is what, this is how I understand philosophy to be. It's about a certain kind of vulnerability. It's about an opening. It's about a fissuring. It's about what I call now a certain kind of process of being unsutured. Uh, the word sutured comes from suture, which means to, to, to hem or to seam, to tie up. So in many ways, I want my students to not only um, be open, to be cut, as it were, to, to be opened, right? So, so in some sense, the very idea of getting them to experience being unsutured requires a certain kind of precondition of being open. And once I've gotten that, which I often do over the course of an entire semester, I want them then to be more unsutured, but also then to remain with the pain that is felt when one is sutured. So often when we say that someone is uh, unsutured, what, what do we do? Well, we want we wanna, to wanna seam them up. You know, we want to, to stitch them up. So I'm arguing uh, counterintuitively that it's important that, stu that students remain unsutured, that they remain open to the possibilities of being wounded and open to the possibilities of understanding that they don't know themselves. And one of the most profound moments, I think, uh, in teaching is to have a student say that they thought they knew themselves prior to coming to this class, and now they realize that they don't. And so for me, that plays into the whole idea of disorientation. Because if you think about whiteness as a form of orientation, and here you can think about the work of Sarah Ahmed, if whiteness is an orientation, if it's a way of seeing the world and approaching the world, then what we really want whites to do is to become disoriented, to lose their way is another way in which I've talked about this, what it means to lose one's way. Um, and I think about that in terms of, you know, let's say if I were to invite you to my house um, and I invited you to my room where I study, and some sense, my room has its own signature uh, that has been created by my movement in that space. So in some sense, when your body enters that room, it doesn't signify you. It doesn't speak to your body in some way. Um, so too, in predominantly white academic spaces, white bodies have already created that space. They've already been a part of this racialized social integument which means a social skin, and they've already stretched it in certain ways that reflect their own identities, that reflect their own ways of being in the world. But the idea of bringing you into my room is to literally get you to say something like, wow, this is a new space for me. I don't know my way around, right? So what I'm trying to get white students then to do is to disrupt the social integument 
that has taken on this process of thingification um, that whereby they begin to move through that space disruptively in order to, to create a space that is so new to them that they literally can't find their way. Um, you know, um, it was it was James Baldwin Baldwin in the in uh, the fire next time who talks about he says that that basically the the black man he says man here has functioned for the white man as a fixed star, but as he moves out of his orbit, right? Um, he Baldwin suggests that in some sense there's a cosmic collapse, right? That things are now in chaos, and I think that's just right. Part of being in academia. Uh, particularly teaching at a predominantly white university and being a black philosopher, it's it's not only the case that um, when one comes into that space, one realizes that that space has already been ironed out in a certain kind of way so that my presence then becomes a peculiar kind of presence. Not only are they learning philosophy, but they're learning it from this black body, which is already pre-marked, which in some sense throws me off as opposed to throwing their own bodies off. So what I want to do is reverse it, whereas my body comes into that space as a problem body, right? because it's black and a philosopher, I want to create a space where they begin to feel their bodies as problematic bodies. Yeah. Well, so let's talk a little bit now then about um, the the bodies that have been marked as problematic by society. Mm. Uh, you know, let's turn to, to talking a little bit about Mike Brown and Eric Garner and uh, Tammy Rice um, and others. Um, you, you've been writing in, in the New York times, you've been interviewing people in the New York times. Um, I'm curious as a way to, to maybe st- to start talking about the current events that we've, we've been witnessing. If you can tell us a little bit about how, uh, engaging in public discourse, uh, you know, in a in a major newspaper, uh, is part of um, your project of, uh, in a certain sense, praying for the devil. I was thinking earlier, you know, your whiteness studies and your your uh, you praying for the devil as a child. I think that there's something connected there. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what moved you into that public discourse and and how you see that as helping to maybe reframe? Um, uh, the reframe how we understand these sorts of situations, like the murder of Eric Garner and others. Yeah, sure. Well, I think part of the problem is that I think it's maybe it's similar to the way in which I think about doing philosophy of race or critical philosophy, critical philosophy of race um, through the through the mean, through the through the lens of academia and through a certain kind of purified discourse, if you will. Right. And my idea is to make um, discourse. Um, is to make discourse funky, right? Is to really talk about finite bodies, uh, bodies that have been lynched, bodies that have been castrated, bodies that have that have you know been forced to 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 live out the existence of the middle passage, let's say, and to 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 um, to sail for months on end in their own excrement, uh, in their own uh, urine, right? To have babies within the hold of those ships, right? So, for, so for me, if one tells the story of African American history, one is already telling a story that explodes the academy. It explodes the purity of discourse. Um, it, it explodes abstraction in such a way that we're really talking about bodies that suffer. We're talking about the least of these, and. To focus on that, right, to, to, to really telescope that world 
it has to be outside of the academy, right? We have to speak a language that folk outside of the, the academy can understand. It's not, it's not condescending, by the way, but it's a way of recognizing that ac- academic discourse is already limited in some sense. So I want to, I want to, uh, I want to. I don't want to say that there's this hierarchy. I want to say that it is a discourse that is that is missing its mark. So in some way, it seems to me that to talk about race, then one has to speak to different publics, and because it's within that space, right, that race is happening. Of course, race is happening in a classroom too. But again, those classrooms are already structured as sort of safe spaces, right? I mean, Michael Brown, for an example, uh, wasn't in an academic space. Tamir Rice wasn't in an academic space. Eric Garner was not in an academic space. Trayvon Martin, uh, Renisha McBride, right? They weren't in these these safe spaces. So it seems to me that we have to use, let's say in this case, uh, where the stone operates as a a very critical site uh, for engaging in discourse about race with 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 a different public in some sense. But what you find there is that, which is which is actually depressing. What you find is that not only within the classroom is there a great deal of denial about race, but when one deals with this larger public, one also realizes that really we're not ready as a nation to have that serious discussion about race. I mean, it didn't happen, you know, when Clinton said he was going to have that national discussion, and it's certainly not going to happen under President Obama's tenure. Um, so I think that although you can you can sense the tension here. I think that it's important to discuss issues like this uh, through the through you know at, at the site of the, using the site uh, using the stone as an important site of embarkation for engaging these very real deep existential issues. Um, while at the same time, one gets all of this resistance, right? And you get that if you just read some of the comments from uh, from the comments that come in. I mean, when I wrote the my Trayvon Martin piece, I got over six hundred comments. And many of those comments came just directly through my university email. And I remember one individual who said to me basically that um, there's a place for those who lead others astray. And then he went on to say, um, say hello to uh, Hitler and Ted Kennedy when you, you know, when you arrive in hell, right? So there's this kind of resistance and kind of anger when we begin to talk about whiteness and how whiteness um, is a certain site of privilege and complicity within structures of, uh, in terms of perpetuating um, uh, issues of racial injustice, when we talk about embeddedness, when we talk about opacity. So I think there's a danger, and yet, right, this goes back to my, my conceptualization of philosophy. What is philosophy? In many ways, it's Socratic in this nature, right? It's, it's out in the emporium. It's not something that's that's simply confined to the academy, um, a relatively safe space. So I'm arguing that to be a philosopher, to be concerned with issues around race, is almost already to place oneself in a certain kind of danger, right? right? Because one is talking about issues that no one wants to really talk about, certainly not critically and not truthfully. Right. So what, what do you think it is about America that has allowed for... Um for the police to 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 shoot these uh, men and women uh, to to kill them to murder them, uh, but to not have it be seen as as murder. That's another good question. I think I think it has something to do with the history of the way in which 
the black body is perceived as being disposable. So we're talking about a politics of disposability. We're talking about a world, a country that was founded on the disposability of black bodies, where black bodies are enslaved, right, by at least 1619, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I think that, I think that, you know, this, this, this clarion call, right, this chant of, of black bodies mattering, that black life matters, I think, I think that, that black bodies in America have always been seen as contaminants, have always been seen as inferior, as anti-citizens, if you like, um, as ersatz, um, as problematic bodies. So it's what Du Bois says when he talks about, um, you know, when he talks to a white person, the real question that they want to ask him is what does it mean to be a problem? And of course, Du Bois means there something ontological. He means that black people are problem people by their very nature, whereas white people have problems, black people are problems. Where white people commit crimes, black people are criminals, right? So there's something about the ontological status of black bodies that has not been fully um, ingested, right, uh, within the context of American history, that we've sort of always been outside of the protection of law in some sense, despite, of course, um, despite the, f- the formal structure of those laws. In our de facto existence, those laws have always fallen short for us. So to, for me, uh, the black body is like a virus and vis-a-vis whiteness. So it, whiteness wants to, to, to distance itself through white topias, right, through discrimination, through Jim Crow, right, through walking on the other side of the street when a black body is coming down. Uh, when one gets in an elevator, the white woman pulls on the purse, right? Um, all of these instances, it seems to me, are ways in which, performative ways in which um, whites want to, to maintain um, America as a, as a place of white purity and where the black body dialectically is seen as an outsider. So I think, I think if we're going to answer the question about um, the value of black life, we have to raise the question about the overvaluing, in fact, the hyperbolic, almost divine, sacred-like valuing of, of white life. So I think in ev- to even come to terms with the question of what it means to be a problem, to come to terms with what Ralph Ellison talked about when he talked about the invisibility of the black body, um, we have to begin to talk about whiteness and critique it, right? Because whiteness, it seems to me, is the foundation for, um, for seeing the black body dialectically as that body which, which is other, which is ersatz, which has been marked in some sense, right? So when we get a case like Trayvon Martin, who moves through this space, right, with his iced tea and Skittles, in some sense, George Zimmerman becomes a proxy of whiteness or fungible with whiteness. He's interchangeable. In some sense, he is the exemplification of the white gaze who's able to see Trayvon Martin as someone who does not belong in that space. So in some sense, Trayvon Martin becomes suspicious, right? He's someone who has something in his hands. Or at one point when he begins to run, George Zimmerman says, as he says, um, these assholes, they always get away, right? And my question is, who are these assholes who always get away? Well, they're black bodies, right? So in some sense, the black body 
The black body is always that body which is marked in such a way that it's always a body that stands out, that it's always stressed. Again, I'm moving here between the work of Sarah Ahmed and Franz Fanon, right? When Fanon talks about uh, reaching for his cigarettes uh, from his drawer, he talks about just being able to move back just a little. And with implicit knowledge, in some sense, he's able to um, reach for his cigarettes and for the lighter. Well, in that case, um, in some sense, Fanon's body is not stressed. When I'm interviewing, for an example, my body isn't being stressed. My body is invisible. It disappears. But in the case of Trayvon Martin, he can't move through the world. In fact, as black bodies, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, we can't move through the world or, or, or Tamir Rice in such a way that our bodies trail behind us, as Sarah Ahmed might say. Rather, our bodies are always stressed. So in some sense, we become reduced to a certain kind of epidermal externalization, where our bodies do not disappear, and where the world, counter to what Merleau-Ponty says, the world does not present itself to our bodies as, I can. Rather, the world presents the, itself to us as, I can't. Right? So in some sense, Trayvon Martin can't move and move through that white space in some way, right? When I go to Af when I go to American Philosophical Association meetings and they're predominantly white, right, monochromatic white spaces, in some way I feel alienated from myself. There's a way in which those bodies trail behind themselves. In some sense, those bodies are not sort of the the figure. They are the ground, but my body becomes the figure, right? So I'm linking this whole idea, right? It's the very thing that Fanon says when the little white kid says, when Fanon's on that train, look, mommy, a Negro, right? And Fanon says, yeah, well, that's right. But of course, the kid continues to say, and eventually the kid says, mommy, the Negro's going to eat me. So there's a way in which the black body has historically been marked and has not allowed, and has not been allowed to come live into the world, as Fanon says, to come effortlessly in the world. Instead, black bodies move with effort through the world, right? Again, Merleau-Ponty has this wonderful example where he says um, that when, I, when my body is standing before uh, a needle and thread, it's not as if my hands are also objects that I see. In some sense, my hands, they become invisible, they disappear. In fact, he calls them, my hands are, are potentialities always already mobilized, uh, given my perception of the thread in the needle. But in some sense, when it comes to the black body, it's not always already mobilized where the pole of action, right, is that where something, the world stands out as a pole of action. Instead, the world greets me as a pole of inaction, right? It greets me as a place where I'm to be stopped, and hence the stop and frisk um, theme, right? The idea is that that, that black bodies are three times more likely to be stopped than white bodies, uh, despite the fact that white bodies are four times likely when they are stopped to actually have illegal stuff, to actually have contraband, right? So there's something about this black body that's a problem body. If you think about Michael Brown, for an example, think about the police officer when he describes Michael Brown as Hulk Hogan and he himself as a five-year-old, Right? Or when he says the only word that I could come up with to describe um, Michael Brown was that he looked like a demon. Right? I mean, this plays on a long history, 
not only of the white American imaginary, but the larger European uh, ima white imaginary, right? Um, and so I think there's something about that. There, there are questions, there are deeper questions that we need to raise about the very heart of America, white America, and the very heart of white American perception. And so philosophically, the question is, how do we change white perception itself? How do we change the ways in which white people inhabit certain kinds of spaces and how they inhabit those spaces in the way that they do? And what does that mean in terms of relationship between how we dwell together? I mean, the, the, the notion of neighbor means to dwell near, and but we don't dwell near. I mean, statistics have it that whites, uh, that, that less than 10% of whites actually have black friends. So, right. I mean, while we can become allies and march together against, you know, the militarization of police, at the same time, at the end of the day, we are not neighbors because we don't dwell near. And that's also complicated by the fact that when white people do try to become neighbors, uh, they do so with this whole apparatus of white supremacy behind them. And so they become gentrifying forces or they don't know how to shut up in meetings. And um, and uh, and that, that kind of leads to this this other question I have for you about do you, do you think that the um, the perception of race is is made more complicated in an age that is, you know, proclaimed to be post-racial because we have uh, a black president or because, you know, the mayor of New York um, is is in a, a, rela a marriage with a black woman and has mixed race children. Um, how how do you how does that complicate um, or change um, how we respond to to these sorts of uh, to white supremacy? Sure. I, I think I think that that basically um, it it reinforces a certain kind of epistemology of ignorance. So I'm going to use a term that Charles Mills has coined, right? There, there's a way in which whites already have a certain kind of misconception or a kind of cognitive dysfunction when it comes to understanding the reality of race because of their positions as white. So we're talking about standpoint epistemology here too, right? There's a way in which they see the world and they see it in a way that they get it wrongly, if you will. So in many ways, uh, it's the perpetuation of an epistemology of ignorance, which can also be seen through an existentialist lens as a form of bad faith. So I think that the, you know, the election of a black president becomes the basis for arguing that we now live in a post-racial moment, which is just absolute nonsense, right? Because my argument is that one can be a racist and vote for Obama. They're not mutually incompatible, right? Particularly when Obama becomes president on the heels of George Bush, right? So whites have so many other reasons to vote for someone like Obama um, in such a way that, you know, the, the blackness uh, of Obama just gets bracketed out. But this, this draws on the, the whole idea of, uh, that, that Derek Bell raises when he talks about interest convergence, that my, my, my sense is that had Obama's platform not conformed with the interests of white people, then he would not have been president. But whites are able to overlook, as it were, his blackness or his being black um, if their interests happen to converge. So that's one point. So I think that um, 
what, what whites will tend to do is tell a certain kind of narrative to themselves, a narrative which, is, which helps to perpetuate a form of bad faith, um, such that to even raise the question of white supremacy or raise the question of whiteness as a site of privilege um, is already null and void for them. Because often I'll have my students who will say to me, well, look, you know, we have Obama. How can we possibly live in a racist society? Right? They just don't see it. Um, or, or they'll, they'll, they'll even say, you know, I have a lot of white friends here on campus, uh, a lot of black friends, sorry, here on campus, or, or I've taken courses in African-American studies, right? Um, but, you know, to bring in the work of Shannon Sullivan here, there's a way in which whiteness is a site of ontological expansionism, right? It takes over those sites where it happens to, to be. And so in some sense, I'm using the term of ontological expansion to say that it interferes with the way in which whites are able to really grasp what's going on uh, in America in a critical way. In some sense, their whiteness expands and sort of begins to impact their interpretive horizons in such a way that they're able to keep the lie going without ever being able to tarry with their own whiteness, which, of course, for me, means without being able to undergo a form of suturing, a form of, uh, sorry, a form of unsuturing, a form of being cut, right? A form of being open to the gift that black people have to give them. And what is that gift? It's the gift of white double consciousness, right? Du Bois says that we were born with this gift of second sight. And so I'm arguing that whites have to be able to see themselves through the eyes of black people or people of color to get some a different kind of affective and cognitive, a more accurate affective and cognitive grasp on what it means to be white in America. So I think, yes, I think that in some sense, the election of Obama, if you will, almost created a larger problem, right? Mm, I mean, yeah. sure, great, right? We, we finally have our, our first, if you will, right? But at the same time, his election uh, added for greater forms of obfuscation on the part of white people, because now they can point to Obama as being a point of arrival, right? We have arrived. But my claim is that there is no place called arrival when it comes to being an anti-racist or, or, or an anti-racist white. In fact, I don't even want to couch what it means uh, to be an anti-racist white in terms of place of arrival or a place of, let's say, of Maslowian self-actualization or something of the sort, right? There is no apex. There is no telos, as it were, that is final, uh, to undo whiteness will require what Du Bois says is long siege, right? It will require to be undone over and over and over again. It will require a different kinds, a kind of hexes, a different kind of habit, a different kind of disposition. And I don't really see us as really being close to that, right, at all, quite frankly. Well, um, I guess as a, a final question, you know, there's always the what is to be done uh, question. Um, you know, we've seen, I think quite inspiringly, uh, a, a number of very young anonymous leaders arising um, out of these protests, um, oftentimes being very critical of, of uh, older generation of civil rights leaders like Al Sharpton. Um, I'm curious what you what you hope might come out of these these protest movements. Mm. What, I, what I would hope, um, and, and here, here's a here's a tricky issue about hope. I say that because um, there's this there's this um, 
there's this framework, a critical framework, it's often referred to as Afro-pessimism. And the idea of Afro-pessimism is that it's, it's not a nihilism in the form that Cornell West talks about it, but it's the argument that uh, is, cons- is congruent with the idea of race realism, that race is real and that race will never go away. This is sort of its primary assumption. And so it begins with a certain kind of nihilisticity, if you will, in the form of Camus' myth of Sisyphus, where Sisyphus has to roll that rock up the hill and have it fall back down again, only to roll it up again, right? So in many ways, I think the problem of race in America is like that. So it has a kind of uh, absurdist dimension to it. I mean, the work of Tim Golden, for example, who's a philosopher at Westchester, he talks about this. So there's a certain kind of absurdist dimension to fighting against racism or fighting against the kind of racism that we've seen uh, in the taking of the lives of Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, and Eric Gardner and others. So there is this sense in which it will never change, but yet there is value in the resistance itself. It is, if you will, a certain kind of Aristotelian notion. It's the idea that unlike, for example, fixing a car where you, you, know, you, you fix the car and you have to engage in all kinds of actions and there's an end to which you're moving, namely the car having been fixed, in many ways um, resistance is like a form of courage where the act itself is its own end. And so what I'm saying in, in a sense is that strangely enough, um, I think we're facing this moment of absurdity in American history. Um, and I have to say that after I had read more about the Michael Brown case, the Tamir Rice and the Eric Garner, I think because of their proximity, uh, I began to feel an emotion that I w- that was shared by other colleagues that I spoke with, particularly colleagues of color. And there was this feeling of hopelessness, a feeling, it, it, w- it was as if uh, it was almost physiological that what were we to do with this feeling that we can't quite articulate, right? And philosophers are supposed to articulate things, right? So this is a moment where philosophy itself stands impotent in the face of the black body as rendered wretched. That philosophy has failed us, right? Well, so much has failed us, but since I'm a philosopher, I'm going to say philosophy has failed us. So how does one go on is really the question, right? Which is an old question, um, because I remember, you know, talking with Lou Outlaw, who talks about how black people would have to make a decision. Should I go on or should I commit suicide? Now, I'm not saying that black people ought to commit suicide. In fact, I'm not suggesting that anyone ought to commit suicide. But I want you to see the gravitas, the existential gravitas of this question. How black women who are pregnant will say these days, I hope that I don't have a son, Right. Which, which really echoes Du Bois's experience over the death of his own son, who said in many ways that the death of his own son was a blessing in disguise because his son could avoid the color line, could avoid, you know, the veil, which is incredible, right? So here we have it. He's writing this around 1903. Here we have it in 2014, the same feeling of angst, the same feeling of failure, the same feeling that that black life doesn't matter vis-a-vis white life. So even though I don't think there is an end 
to white supremacy because I can't see what it would take, right? I don't see how to undo it outside of a discourse or outside of, a, of political mechanisms or maneuvers that are endemic to that system itself, right? And if that's the case, then, you know, we can't undo it, as it were. It's raising this whole question about the master's tools and undoing the, the master's house with his own tools. I don't think we can do that. Of course, what's on the other side of that, I'm not sure. So what I hope that comes out of this is really more protest, vigorous protest, right? Something that we haven't seen yet, right? And the whole idea of marching on Washington, for example, is one form of protest, but we have to be careful there because otherwise it becomes one march, it becomes a site um, for placating black people and white people around these recent killings, and we don't need to be placated, which is not to say that we need to be violent. It's to say that we need to be more passionate, and to be passionate means to suffer. So we have to suffer together, right? And through that suffering, right, some sort of political praxis uh, should come out of that, something that's enduring and something that's long, right? Something like Du Bois says, long siege, right? Because otherwise it's going to be episodic, right? It's, it's going to be momentary. So I'm hoping that out of this, um, I'm hoping that people will continue to shut down cities, right? They'll continue to shut down business as usual with passion, with dignity, you know, and with a sense of humanity. And to make sure we don't forget about what we're talking about. We're talking about the death, right, of black people, the death of black males, the, the death of uh, Th Thanatos in our, in our presence, taking these lives as we stand around and do nothing about it, right? So in many ways, that implicates us, right? When we see the death of these black males and we do nothing about it. So I'm hoping that a certain kind of, a certain kind of prolonged um, righteous indignation comes out of this, but gets expressed through a certain, kinds, a certain kind of praxis, which is heard and that's felt in the street. So that's our conversation with George Yancey, professor of philosophy at Duquesne University. I'm sure many of you are heading to your families for the holidays. I wish you luck and hope that you can be brave. I'll be putting up a lecture by Joshua Ramey soon, as well as an AAR session uh, on theology and violence, as well as interviews with Michael O'Rourke, a queer theorist from Ireland, and Alexander Dublay, a philosopher out of Berkeley. I'm getting ready for a 13-hour drive tomorrow to Northwest Illinois. So if you believe in God, I could probably use some prayers. And if you don't, there's probably a PayPal link somewhere so you can send me money to buy whiskey. I'm just really bad at the holidays. And even worse, keeping my mouth shut at the dinner table. For everyone else who goes home and is alienated by racist relatives, or just feeling like you never wanted to come back to this town again, I hope you remember that your name is your name.